Thank you. It's great to be with you guys. As Paulette said, I have a long history back to Otter Creek in the old building, which is actually where I went this morning. Uh, <laughs> not because I don't know about this building. I've been here many times, but I just plugged it into Google Maps quickly. Um, my wife was driving our grandson. It's asleep in the back car still. And I had no idea that Google Maps still says Otter Creek Church of Christ on Granny White. So we got off, and we were heading over that way, and I thought, no, this is the old place. <laughs> so fortunately, we got here on time. But it's great to be with you all. We really appreciate it. It's a good day to be a Falls fan. I saw your shirt. <laughs> and I know uh, some of you are going way back. Steve Sherman, uh, where's Steve? There he is. And uh, Steve and I go back to uh, my first international trip when I was a college student at Vanderbilt and um, went to Guatemala to visit with Steve's team there and just a remarkable experience. So glad to know them through the years. And um, so it, what I want to do in the minutes that we have is give you a quick overview of hospice. But I know that's not really our focus, but I want you to know the concept of hospice. And then I want to talk a little bit about end-of-life decision-making and the, the decision points that will come from all, for all of us, at whatever age we are, we're, we're all on the same journey. We're all going to end up at the same place. So this is relevant for everyone, no matter what our stage in life. Unfortunately, most of us in this culture push these decisions off until we're very near the end of our lives. And that creates a lot of problems for us, for our families, um, for uh, friends, for those who take care of us, and even for healthcare professionals who have to deal with these circumstances when people have not made adequate plans for the end of their lives. Um, and then I want to talk briefly about these uh, tools that we have, uh, two that are from the state of Tennessee, and then one the five wishes that Paulette mentioned that we'll talk briefly about. And these are tools that we each need to have um, as, as we approach the end of our lives. And one of them is one that we need to have now, even those of us who um, are not closer to that point in our lives, um, we need to have this tool completed. That's an advanced directive. Um, so, and I want to do all that very quickly because I want to have time for some exchange and questions at the end. So basically, hospice, um, and it's important because when we get to the end of life to, to consider this, the hospice comes from an old Latin word, uh, which is spelled basically the same way, and it evolved through, um, through all the different uh, derivations. And it's really important because it has to do at its etymology, at its root, with what, what we're doing. So the old Latin word hospice meant either a guest or a host, so on either side of that equation, as well as a foreigner and a stranger. And it, it uh, became... Uh, the word hospitum, which had to do with the, um, the way that a, a host related to a, a guest. And so from that word comes hospital and hospitality, the word host, hostess, uh, hostel. All of those come from the same root word going all the way back to Latin. And they all have to do with this idea of being a generous guest to those in need. So I like to think about hospice, the model of care, not just the buildings, as a guest house or a station uh, that accepts and, and provides comfort as we're on this journey from life to death and to whatever we believe comes after that. And of course, in hospice, we take care of people with a lot of different beliefs. Um, but this is the origin uh, of the word, and it has to do with the concept. So when you think about hospice, 
don't think about the buildings, and I'm not here to represent a lie, but I will make a couple of points along the way, but we, when a lot of people think about a lie, they think about the 30-bed building down on Patterson Street in Nashville, or we have a new 10-bed unit expect, expanding to 16 in Murfreesboro. That's what people think about. Oh, I was in hospice, and I was there, and the reason I mention Alive is because we are the only hospice that has freestanding buildings where we take care of people at the end of their lives. But hospice is a model of care. Most people, 80, 90% of people who are in hospice are in their homes. So the idea of hospice came from a couple of realizations that Medicare made many years ago, and this is one of the few things that um, the federal health care system has done right, in my view. Um, um, and that is we re recognize that 80% of people in the United States wanted to die at home, and only about 50% kept to. Um, so uh, that was a stark reality. And you know, if we look at European systems, which I think have a much more developed uh, federal approach to health care, um, we see the equation is flipped. More people are able to die at home in those settings than in the United States. The second thing they looked at was that the majority of Medicare health care dollars are spent in the last year of someone's life. And the majority of those are spent in the last couple of months. So we're spending a huge portion of our Medicare dollars on taking care of people in the last few weeks or months of their lives because we die in the hospital and we die in intensive care units. That's the model in the United States. So in 1986, Medicare said, let's try to change that. So they came up with what's called the Medicare Hospice Benefit. And that means that when you get to that point, and usually it's, a, um, it's cancer, is one of the most common diagnoses, cancer and chronic neurologic illnesses like Alzheimer's, uh, people make a choice. Am I going to stay on this path of medical care focused on cure or stabilizing an illness, and am I going to, or am I going to change my focus, my target, to comfort and uh, care at the end of life? And I think it's really important. I hear this all the time. People say, we're going to withdraw care and move you to hospice, or we're going to stop non-aggressive care and move you to hospice. And those are both terrible words and terrible phrases. Um, we never withdraw care. What we do is shift the focus of care. Our target is on your chronic lung disease or your heart disease or your cancer, stabilizing it, making it better, curing it when possible. But at some point when that's no longer an option, we shift the target to comfort and to care for you at the end of your life. But we never withdraw care. It's a different kind of care. The second thing is I tell people all the time, we are very aggressive about our care in hospice. I don't want people to think, oh, we're going to discharge you or you're going to stop aggressive care. We're very aggressive. We're just aggressive about treating pain and agitation and, and shortness of breath uh, and all the things that happen at the end of life. So it is still aggressive care in the sense that we are focused on doing everything that people need to remain comfortable at the end of life. So I think those are two important concepts people are often misled about when they think about uh, hospice care. So Medicare created this benefit. And to get into hospice, you have to have two physicians that certify that you have six months or left, uh, or less left to live. Um, now, that's very difficult, right? Physicians are terrible at, at prognosticating and figuring out how long people have to live. But it's an estimation. We're a little better at it with cancer. We're terrible at it with Alzheimer's disease. It's very, very difficult. My dad lived 16 years after his diagnosis of Alzheimer's disease. Uh, fortunately, he never ended up in an institution. My mom was always able to care for him at home with more help toward the end of his life, and then finally with a live hospice in the last few months. 
Um, but uh, we're very, it's very difficult to predict the course of an illness for something like Alzheimer's. Even with cancer, it's hard, but we do better, especially since most oncologists don't spend their, send their patients to hospice until they have a few weeks left to live. And then we can't do as much. So at Alive, 80% of our referrals come out of hospitals. 80% come out of hospitals. It should be the other way. Physicians should be making recommendations about end-of-life care long before the last few weeks or last few days of someone's life. We get referrals straight out of the intensive care unit uh, of people who are ready to stop their aggressive care, their disease-focused care, and move to hospice. Completely misses the philosophy of hospice. Completely misses all that we have to offer. So hospice involves, hospice is a nursing-centric profession. So what nurses do is much more important than what physicians do. We have an ancillary support role. That's a flip of the way that, that medical care often works. Really not. I mean, nurses do all the care in medicine anyway. It's just that in other models, physicians think they're in charge and think they're important. But in hospice, we know we're not in charge. Right? <laughs> so it's a nursing-centric model of care. Um, but we also, the team has a nurse, has a social worker, has a chaplain, and a home health aide. Every patient has access to those disciplines. And again, the nurse is the one who carries most of the weight on a day-to-day -day basis. The nurses are the ones who get close to patients. The nurses are the ones who feel it most personally when someone dies, because they've been in your home once a week, three times a week, every day as the end of life uh, approaches. But chaplains and social workers have a crucial role as well. And then there's all the support staff, and physicians are one of those. And quite frankly, I spend most of my day as chief medical officer and as a medical director. I'm the medical director for the Murfreesboro inpatient unit for one of our five home teams. We have five home teams that cover 12 counties. And I'm also the medical director for uh, the pediatric team. So I wear a lot of different hats. But I spend most of my day sitting in front of the computer, answering calls from the nurses, writing orders, you know, dealing with their emails. Theirs is the hard work. It's the work out on the front line taking care of people who are dying. So that's the model of care that we have with hospitals. And it's a very important model that provides people the support they need to die at home if that's what they choose. And again, 80% of Americans say that's what we would do if we, if we could, but mo most of them, or at least half of them, are not able to do that. So that's a model, a way to look at end-of-life care. My hope is you know, if we don't die suddenly, like my dad's father or my mom's mother, who passed away you know, abruptly, which is my, my grandmother died in her sleep. It's the way that all of us would like to go, right? We go to bed, and we don't wake up, and it's calm and peaceful, and there's no pain involved. Um, but if, if we don't do that, if we can see our death coming in the foreseeable future, then hospice is a good model, especially when we get to the point where we think we've got about six months or less. If we miss that target, it doesn't mean you leave hospice. It just means every 60 days we have to recertify and say that we believe that you're still eligible for the Medicare hospice benefit. Now, if you're not Medicare age, a lot of private insurances have hospice benefits that are, most of them, written according to the same standards of Medicare. So that's a philosophy of care that we have in hospice. Now, the other thing that I saw on your list that um, you wanted to talk about, and I think it I mean, definitely relates to that. And, uh, those are the steps, the decision points that we make along the way, and then as we come to these documents that will help us support those decisions. So I don't know if you, you want to pass those out so I can reference them and then we'll look at them. So one of these is a living will or an advanced directive. The other one is a post form, a physician order for life-sustaining treatment, for life-sustaining care. They're very distinct. Some of us need both. Some of us only need one. 
And then the five wishes is a proprietary approach to that. It's a very unique and novel approach. It's now translated into, I don't know, 30, 40, 50 languages around the world, uh, used by multi-millions of people. So it's a very helpful one. The other forms are state-specific. So the advanced directive in the living will is specific to the state of Tennessee. And every state has some variation of that. The post form, the order form that you're going to see, looks a little different in every state, but it's, it's used across the country. So if you fill out a post form in Tennessee, and you happen to be near the end of your life when you're visiting your family in California or Illinois, they have to recognize that form, provided you have it with you. So I encourage you, when you get to that point in life, to always keep this form with you when you leave. Because this is the form where a physician writes an order that says you have chosen not to do this, this, and this. Without that, if you were to call an ambulance, let's say you're 70 years old and you have cancer and are expected to die in a month, if you don't have that form and you're somewhere else and somebody calls an ambulance, they have to come do everything possible to resuscitate you. That's the law. Unless someone can show them that form and says, I have a doctor that said don't do any of that. So that's the importance of the post form. And we'll talk about those in the... the the uh, five wishes. So the most common decision that we make is do not resuscitate, do not intubate, what's called DNR, DNI. And that's a pretty straightforward decision for most people. Whether you're younger and have a chronic life-limiting illness, I hate the word terminal, right? we're all terminal from the day we're born, um, but it's a, a life-limiting illness. Once you have that, um, or when you reach a stage in life when you say, I don't want to be resuscitated, I don't want chest compressions, I don't want to be inhalated, then you make this decision for DNR, DNI, and that's on the form. We'll talk about where you designate that on the form. Now, we don't have time to talk about this unless you want to and we have some questions, but I want to submit to you this thought, and that is resuscitation, cardiopulmonary resuscitation, like you see on TV, where we push on someone's chest and breathe for them, almost never works. It's not like television. If you die in a hospital and someone sees that, then, then cardioversion, electrical shock, can be very helpful if you die as a result of a cardiac rhythm problem. But um, if it happens out in the movie theater, out in a restaurant, most places now have an automated a AED, an automated external defibrillator. You just take the paddles, you put it on the chest, it automatically reads the rhythm and it shocks if you need to. You don't have to know any of the algorithms that we used to know in medicine. But unless somebody knows how to use that and does that within a few minutes, then your chances of surviving that are slim to none. And most people who have a full-blown resuscitation, a full-blown arrest, and are resuscitated and intubated and get to the hospital, only about 15 to 20 percent of those people survive. And only a fraction of those leave the hospital neurologically intact. Because when your blood flow to your brain is decreased for more than four to seven minutes, there's irreparable brain damage. So it's not what you see on TV. So when you choose to be resuscitated, you need to understand somebody's going to pound on your chest and break your ribs, and you have very little chance of surviving. So in my encouragement is when we pass a certain age or a certain illness that we take this very seriously. And when I fortunately, I see people with advanced cancer, advanced dementia, the family or the patient still says, I want everything done. I want to be resuscitated. And it just doesn't work. Um, so that's the easy decision that most people make. Then there are all the other life-supportive, life-sustaining treatments. So one is the ventilator. And we have a lot of people who say, I want to go on a breathing machine, but I only want to do it for a few days. I don't want to stay on for a long time. 
So intubate me, and I want to do this for a few days, and if it doesn't work, take me off. That's a very difficult decision to make. Because then you're asking your family to withdraw that ventilator. And you're asking your physicians to determine when you are at the point that it's not going to be helpful. Now, we do that sometimes. But it's a very hard decision when someone's on a ventilator and you say, okay, we are convinced now that you're not going to come off of this ventilator or you're not going to survive, you're going to have brain damage, and the children have to step up and say, please remove mom from the ventilator. So it's, it's better to tie these together. Say, if you want full resuscitation, you're going to go on a ventilator and you're going to stay there until your family and your team come to a conclusion together that this is no longer beneficial. And that's a hard thing to do. Another one is dialysis. All that said, you can tell a lot of stories in here. Um, I, I wish I had time to tell you all of the family stories that brought me to hospice care, one being my father's and his 16 years. But my mom's dad ended up on dialysis. He made the decision in 1996 to stop dialysis, which nobody did back then. We didn't have the internet to search it, but almost no one was making that decision. Now we admit one, two, three people every week to dialysis who've made a decision to hospice who've made a decision to stop dialysis. But no one talks about this as a life-sustaining heroic intervention in the way we talk about a ventilator. When you go on a, a dialysis machine, on average, you have 10 years to live. And at any point, you should be able to stop it if you want to. But people don't think in those terms. Then we get to um, artificial fluid and nutrition, so IV fluid and uh, feeding tubes. Um, now, everywhere along this path, people feel emotionally attached when they cross a threshold, or they feel morally or ethically or spiritually that they've reached the point at which they're comfortable making this decision. And for a lot of people, that's here. People who say, I don't want this, um, but I might want to go on a Dallas machine if I have kidney problems. And that's perfectly acceptable. It makes all the sense in the world. As long as you understand, there may come a point where you say, I don't want this anymore because of all the side effects of it. A lot of people draw the line here and say, I, I will always want food and water. It's, it's deep within us as humans, that we feed our family and that we give drink and nourishment to our family. We do it to our kids, right? Our kids are sick and we say, eat, 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 get your strength, get better. It doesn't work on the other end of life, right? Eating is not always the right solution. Sometimes it does more harm than good. And certainly putting on a feeding tube for someone who has advanced cancer, for someone who has dementia like my father, it, for the most part, it doesn't prolong life, and we could go into all the medicine and physiology behind that, but it certainly can be very harmful in keeping someone alive who doesn't need that. The same, and then there are people that will say, no, I don't want a feeding tube, because that's invasive, but I do want IV fluid. I don't want my family member to be thirsty at the end of life. I don't want my family member to starve to death. And the reality with cancer is that most people who die of cancer who don't die abruptly die of malnutrition and dehydration because they get to a point where they can't eat and drink. And if you're not doing this intervention, it's the, the increase in the body's metabolism and the lack of food and water is what usually leads to death with cancer patients, unless the cancer invades a, a critical part of the body. So this is a place where a lot of people say, I can't cross that threshold. And that's okay. But it's important to realize that these are also interventions, right? This is an artificial way to breathe. This is an artificial way to filter the kidneys. This is an artificial way to eat and drink. We, when our bodies are not made to 
feed through a tube into our stomachs and they're not made to get their water through an IV. Perfectly acceptable to do that. A lot of people don't want to say no to that. But it is an artificial intervention. So morally and ethically, it's okay to stop there. Um, and then the final one that we usually talk about is, I'm just using x-rays as antibiotics. This is where a lot of people really struggle, right? And again, the story of my, my dad's mother was that she was in the hospital with severe, in the nursing home with severe dementia. And my dad decided not to treat her pneumonia with antibiotics. Now, Sir William Osler, who was one of the founding fathers of modern American medicine, founded Johns Hopkins Medical School, said pneumonia is the friend of the elderly. What he meant by that is pneumonia is, for the most part, a very comfortable way to die. But we have antibiotics that can treat almost every urinary tract infection and every pneumonia. So we have nursing homes filled with people who have severe dementia and don't know their families, are in bed, have contractures, being kept alive, because eventually, if you're in that state, you're going to get an infection. You're going to get pneumonia, you're going to get a urinary tract infection. That's just inevitable. If you treat every one of those, then you can keep someone, your loved one, alive for a long, long time. So it is, in my view, morally and ethically, spiritually acceptable to say this is another intervention. I'm not going to treat those infections, and I'm going to let my loved one pass peacefully. And that's what my dad did with his mom. It's just to say, he called me, and as a young doctor, and I, when did she die? What? Uh, 92. 92. So I was 32 years old and not far into practice. And we talked for an hour or two on the phone about this, helping him get to the point. I didn't make the decision for him. But answering his questions as he got to the point, saying, what, why, why do this? She doesn't know me. She doesn't know the family. She's in a nursing home. Why do this? And so he didn't treat her. And she passed away a couple of days later, very comfortably with my mom and dad and my brother around her bed, singing to her, being with her. So much better than going on another year, another year, another year with antibiotic treatment. So these are the decision points that you'll find on these papers that you have to make as you think about the end of life and the end of life care. Um, now, the other thing that I saw uh, on your, the, the list that Paulette gave me was to talk a little bit more about hospice, and we did that, but someone had mentioned hospice as a, um, a care for the end of life and a hospice as a life-sustaining uh, treatment, and I want to probe that a little bit, and maybe that just there's something lost in communication, but the goal of hospice, as I wrote and mentioned, is not to prolong someone's life, it's to make someone comfortable. We don't do anything in hospice to shorten a life. Not a part of hospice care at all to accelerate the dying process. That's a whole nother conversation that, that we can have for those who want to talk about it. We don't, that's not a part of hospice. Um, but we, we also don't do anything to prolong someone's life. So we don't usually, rarely ever, would we put a feeding tube into someone who already is in hospice. If someone comes to us with a feeding tube, we're not automatically going to stop it. But at some point along the way, we're going to talk seriously with the family about the fact that this feeding tube is doing more harm than good. The body can no longer absorb the nutrition. The, get, the bowels don't work. The fluid often comes back up and goes down the airway, aspirating. So at some point, the feeding tube is no longer helpful. But we don't put that in, usually, in the hospital. But if you come with it, we'll continue the IV fluid in the feeding tube. Um, but in general, our focus is simply on treating symptoms and making sure that people are comfortable. Those that we can't help be comfortable at home then go to inpatient care, 
where we can manage the symptoms with nurses 24 hours a day with all the medications on hand. And that's what the Nashville unit is and the Murfreesboro unit. Hospices that don't have those freestanding units have contracted for beds either in a nursing home or in a hospital where patients are moved to receive that level of care in a different setting. But that's the inpatient part of, ho uh, part of hospice. And only about 10% of hospice patients end up having to receive that sort of care. Most people are able to stay home, which is what hospice is about. Um, so let's look at these, and then we'll leave ourselves a few minutes to talk. So you should have two forms in white. These are Tennessee forms. They're on the website, and I think the website's listed at the bottom of them. Um, do you have an extra one so I can look at it? So let's look at the advanced directive first. Uh, um, so you've got one with some color on it. That's the post form. We'll talk about that second. The advanced directive is the form that every one of us should have. At my age, at 30, at 40, at 50, uh, I'm 62, uh, beyond that, every one of us needs an advanced directive because it helps us and our families understand what we would want to have. I could die of a heart attack tomorrow. My dad had bypass surgery when he was 58. All of his first cousins had bypass surgery in their late 50s or early 60s. Um, I've got terrible genes with respect to heart disease, not from my mom, but from my dad. So I have to think about the fact that I could die suddenly. I could die in a car accident when I leave here, right? And not be dead, but have an injury. So every one of us needs this advanced directive form. Again, that means in advance, we are telling our team and our family what we want to have done when certain things happen in our lives and in our health. So you see at the first part that you select an agent, an agent is the person you want to make your decisions for you. For most people who are in a happy, healthy marriage, that's your spouse if you have a spouse. Not every time. I have patients who say, no, nope, my wife's not making these decisions for me. That creates some problems at the end of life, right? Um, but it might be a child. So for my mom and dad, they designate each other, of course, as the agent 15, 20 years ago when they first did this. And I was the secondary agent. So if one of them couldn't make that decision, then it fell to me to do that. So this gives you an op op option to put an alternate agent. Those are important things to think about. If you don't have that agent at the end of life, then we follow kind of an algorithm to determine who is your surrogate decision maker. In some states, that is by default the spouse. And next is the oldest child, then the second oldest, then the third. If you don't have those, it goes out through this this um, algorithm. In Tennessee, that's not true, thankfully. In Tennessee, the surrogate, if you don't have a living will, is the person who has known you the best and understands your values the best over the last six months or 12 months of your life. It's not designated. So I had one patient who was married to a woman he hadn't lived with, had lived with for seven or eight years. She lived in another state, and the woman that he had been with for the last seven or eight years was not legally married to him. That's a, that's a different story. But, <laughs> but she was the designate. We designated her as the surrogate decision maker because she knew his values and his wishes much better than his legal wife did. But in some states, in Indiana or Illinois, she would have been the surrogate decision maker even though she had no relationship, financial or otherwise, with her husband. So not all of them are that messy, but it's just important to recognize that, that your surrogate in Tennessee is not necessarily by default a spouse or a child. It can be anyone who knows you best and, and has your values. So if you don't designate this agent, we have to go through this list and figure out who the agent is. The other way to do that, 
that maybe is even a little stronger is a power of attorney for healthcare decisions. That's a legally designated person. Uh, the surrogate, if we don't have that decision, the surrogate is our best determination. And you can change your surrogate at the last minute. If you still have decisional capacity and can make that decision, you can decide, I know I put this person on the form, but I want to change it to this person. And as long as the team agrees that you have the ability to make that decision, this can be changed. Power of attorney is harder, but power of attorney stands up more in court or if there's a battle among the children. And unfortunately, that's difficult. So one of the principles in all this is do everything you can to make sure your family is in agreement and they know your wishes. That proverbial second cousin who comes in from California and wants to stop everything is a total nightmare. So you want to make sure that everyone in your family knows that you have this and understands it and are all in agreement. If they're not, then you need to choose whoever you want to be your legal power of attorney. Because then that battle may happen among the children, but there is someone who is legally designated who can, if they have the stamina, say to the other siblings, I'm sorry, mom made me power of attorney and I'm going to make this decision. But the consequences are horrendous in terms of the family relationship. So try to work that out. So the second part of this is to indicate your wishes for your quality of life. Um, so basically what you do is you go down through here and mark the condition that you would be willing to live with if given adequate comfort and management. Um, so the person is permanent unconscious condition. You can see the definition. Are you willing to live in that condition? That's basically the question. If the answer is no, you move to the next one. Permanent confusion. Are you willing to live um, in a state of permanent confusion where you don't recognize your family? The answer is yes, you check yes. If it's not, you check no and you move to the next one. Are you willing to live if you're dependent on all of your activities of daily living? If you can't do anything for yourself, are you willing to live in that condition? And then if you check yes that you are, then it goes to end stage illness. And that is, am I willing to live if I have an illness that is going to predictably bring about the end of my life in a certain period of time? So you check all of those, and if your answer is no, I'm not willing to live in any of these conditions, or I'm willing to live with the first two but not the bottom, then you indicate your wishes for treatment. And what this says is if I'm in one of those conditions, then this is what I want to have done. And those are the decisions we talked about, CPR, other means of life support, treatment of new conditions, antibiotics, feeding tube, and IV fluids. So this lays all of that out in a legal form that carries weight in the healthcare setting. And once you have this, your doctor needs to have it. Um, and every time you enter a hospital, they're supposed to ask, um, I don't know if you're going to come, my wife's out there with my grandson. <laughs> um, they should, uh, under joint commission rules, hey, Rowan. This <laughs> is a little over. He just broke up, woke up from his nap. So um, if you're ho the hospital's supposed to ask you if you have this, and if you do, you need to give a copy of it to them. Your doctor needs to have a copy of this as well. And then at the end, you have to have a signature of two witnesses, or you can have it notarized, as Paulette said. So this one doesn't always require a notary. This can be two individuals, and it tells you who, who those individuals are in terms of their relationship. And then it tells you what to do with the advanced directive. So this is what we call a living will or an advanced directive. It's pretty straightforward. But spend some time with it and determine, am I willing to live in any of these states and what do I want to have done? And there's no right or wrong answer to this. You can say, yes, I want to live, I'm willing to live in a permanent unconscious condition. Or I don't want to live even if I have an end-stage illness. So I have an end-stage illness and something happens to me acutely. Don't do any of these things um, uh, because I don't want anything that's going to prolong my life. Now, the second one 
is important, I'm going to say this delicately, the second one is important for individuals at a certain stage in life, a certain level of maturity, a certain age, um, or with anyone who has a life-limiting illness. For those individuals who are younger and don't have a, uh, a uh, diagnosis that is, is, would normally lead to the end of life in a short time period, uh, so if I'm 60 and I have cancer, then I'm in that category who needs a post. I don't have one of these because I don't need it in my condition. I want to either be able to make my own decisions or with an advanced directive have my wife make that decision or if she can't, one of our children. A post form is when you want a physician to say what will be done. So in Tennessee, this is called a physician order for scope of treatment. A lot of states call it a post, a physician order for life-sustaining treatment. Um, this is... This is legal in every state. Once you do it in Tennessee, we can travel with you. So this you work through the same way. Do you, do you want to be resuscitated or not resuscitated? Um, and that's the doctor's order, and that's can be where it ends. I don't want to be resuscitated no matter what. Then do you want medical interventions? And again, you check that if you have a pulse or are breathing, do you want these things to be done? So the top one is if, if I don't have a pulse and I'm not breathing, don't do anything to me or resuscitate me. The second one is, if I have a pulse and I'm breathing, do I want just comfort measures? Do I want limited interventions? Do I want full interventions? And I'm not going to read all those for the sake of time, but you can see how those are laid out. Then we go to artificial nutrition. That has its own category, right? Because we said morally and ethically some people struggle with that. Do I want a tube? Do I want a defined period of the tube? Do I want long-term feeding with the tube? And then it goes to who you discussed it with, and have you appointed a healthcare agent or a power of attorney? And in the basis of these orders, it's your preferences or what someone believes is your, in your best interest. Then your physician or your healthcare provider, a nurse practitioner, uh, can do that. And then at the bottom, it's where you sign it and have your surrogate sign it. So without spending a lot of time on those, you can read over them. They're available on the website. I think it's on the bottom of one of these forms. So you can print them off. Uh, really, really important to have both of those at a certain point in life for a certain illness. Now, the five wishes, I think, is a great great form, um, and I think all of you have one of those. This was developed, you can read the history of it, there's a great website about it, when someone said this is way too complicated, and it's not user friendly, and it doesn't address everything. This addresses the nuts and bolts of medicine, but there's more to the end of life than just making those decisions. So it gives these five wishes. What first wish is I want someone to make my decisions. The second is here's the kind of treatment I want. That's the advanced directive. The third is exactly how comfortable I want to be how I want people to treat me, and what I want my loved ones to know. And that's what's left off of most forms. Um, so, again, we won't take time to go through it. It's pretty self-explanatory. It's been translated into, I don't know, 30, 40 languages around the country, used by tens of millions of people. It's very, very popular now. You can go online and buy one of these. They're just a few dollars. You can buy a number of them. You can pay an extra fee and have this electronically stored on the website so it can be available anywhere or you can have a copy for any of these forms. If you have them, let someone in your family know that you have them and have them in a place where they can be found. Now, you don't have to paste this to your refrigerator door, but what my mom's done is a really good idea, and that is she has on her refrigerator door, my advanced directive is in this cabinet in this drawer. So that way, if an ambulance shows up, and the family's there, or it's her net neighbor, 
Oh, this is where that form is. I didn't remember it, then I can go find it very quickly. That's a little more user-friendly than having this page that you So uh, read through this and look at the five wishes. It's really very helpful when you look and see, this is what I want my loved ones to know. This is how comfortable I want to be. This is the way I want people to treat me. I think this is a great form and a little more user-friendly uh, and, and comfortable. So the final thing, final thing I'm going to do, and I'm going to just have a few minutes to, to talk to those of you who need to leave, but there's a book called Four Things That Matter Most. It's written by Ira Bayot, who is a family doc who went into hospice care uh, early in his career. Um, and he wrote this book. And what he says, the fourth, what he's saying basically is that everyone needs to say these four things or one of these four things to someone before they die. Ideally, long before they die but at least, at least toward the end of life. One is, I love you. It's pretty straightforward, right? Um, I forgive you. That's the hardest one. <laughs> forgive me. Okay. Thank you. Thank you. I just blanked on my last one. I do this all the time. I so, um, and then he's added, in some places, a fifth one called goodbye. So basically what we're saying is, People need to know that, that we love them. And it's not just assumed. Like one of my friends, or you see this cartoon all the time, I, I told her I loved her when we got married, and I'll tell her if something changes, right? That's not the way this works. You need to tell people specifically that you love them. You need to say, forgive me. And I think this is real important. I encourage people, don't, don't just say, I forgive you for all the things that you did in my life that hurt me. If there are people that, that you have hurt in some way, friends or family, spouse, say, please forgive me for this. Same way thing we try to teach our kids. It's not enough when they just said, sorry. It's like, I'm sorry that I hit you. Please forgive me. Now, they don't always do that, right? <laughs> Nor do we. But it's that principle. I'm going to name what I did to you, and I'm going to ask you to forgive me. That's really important at the end of life. Thank you. That's pretty forward. But again, I don't encourage any of us to say, thanks, Mom, for all that you've done uh, that's special, that, that's helpful. I'm going to say, thank you, Mom, for this, this, and this. Um, and then the hardest one is to say, I forgive you. They may not ask for forgiveness. They may not want your forgiveness. Uh, my brother, who's a psychologist, likes to phrase this as, I'm letting go of this burden. I'm going to let go of this burden that I've carried about you during the course of my life. There's a lot of great stories in this book, a lot of stories that I could tell you, but these are really important in a way that people have been able to frame their conversations at the end of life. Okay, I used up all of our time. Um, those who want to stay, I can stay longer. Those who need to go to church, please do that. Yeah. Everybody doesn't want them, doesn't want them to stay home, but it was it was a beautiful blessing for us to have my dad at Alive because the nurses took care of it, and they did all the hard with the yeah. stuff in your lungs and all that yeah. that we wouldn't have known how to do, and it was so wonderful because we could just be there and yeah. pray over him and sing with him and be with him, and that way.
at Vanderbilt Music, and he was going to be a doctor, and he was playing the violin, I think. Someone will pause and pray. And he came in and played. And our goal is to make that available, that type of experience at home, but also in the unit if people need to come to them. Again, I'll stay if anyone wants to talk or ask more, but I do want to make sure you feel free to get up and go because I know some of you have worship in just a few minutes. Uh, thanks for the opportunity to be here. Really Thank do appreciate you. it. Thank you so much. Thank you. I hope I covered what you oh, wanted. yeah, you did. You did.